Hi, I'm Pat. And I'm Vince. And welcome to the Wired Holiday Special. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the seminal Christmas film, Less Than Zero. Released in 1987, Less Than Zero was a movie adaption of the 1984 Freddie Sinellis novel by the same name. Uh, the movie stars Andrew McCarthy, Jamie Gertz, Robert Downey Jr., and James Spader. James Spader, one of my favorite performances from James Spader as well. Right. He's like pretty much, every scene you see him, he looks like the devil, doesn't he? <laughs> he's just like kind of handsome, slick back hair, but he's always wearing something like a like very strong red. It, it, he dresses amazingly, I gotta say. It reminded me of another Brady Stanellis novel, The Informers, which is an anthology of short stories where he talks a lot about vampires. <laughs> and it's it's like the only, Brady Stanellis like it toe dips the supernatural. But um, he describes these people operating in L.A. like James Spader's character, uh, Rip, as kind of like literal vampires. But also, uh, kind of metaphorically, you can see how they prey on other people, they bleed people dry, oh, yeah, whatever. absolutely. So that's the, I, when, you, when I was watching it just last night, that's the vibe I got from it, too, is that the motherfucker looks like a vampire. Yeah. But the story, uh, Less Than Zero doesn't contain vampires. Less Than Zero is the story of Clay, uh, who is, graduates high school goes to the East Coast to a liberal arts college and all of his friends stay back in L.A. And when he returns home for Christmas, he kind of reconnects with these people. And uh, at the very pre-credit scene, we see that they're, it's, it's, they're, they're all bright young hopefuls just graduating uh, high school, have their whole life ahead of them. Clay's going off to college to become something great. Um, Blair's modeling career is starting to take off. And Julian is getting a loan from his dad to start, uh, what was it, a record company. Right. And when uh, there's there's a brief black and white flashback where he comes back around Thanksgiving, finds that Blair and Julian have started a romantic relationship, and uh, right just prior to his return home for Christmas, he gets a call from Blair saying, "I need you to come home." And he, and, and and in Clay's mind, he's thinking maybe she wants to reconnect. He still loves her. He still misses her. So uh, he decides he is going to actually go home. So then you see him land, and he goes to visit uh, Blair, and they end up going to a party. And every time they talk, she just keeps asking, have you seen Julian, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, have you talked to Julian yet? Because Julian has apparently been in some trouble lately. He's been disappearing. He's been more erratic. Julian was always a drug user and always kind of messed up, but it's been more and more lately. He's been disappearing. Things have been getting more serious. Yeah, and, and we'll delve into this a little bit later, but in, in the book, Clay was, um, when he left, was just as much of a drug user and uh, freely... Uh, sexual deviant yes, as yes. as Julian was but in, in this movie Andrew McCarthy is more of a uh, sympathetic straight character you never really see him do drugs uh, he only has one romantic interest and it's Blair his ex Yeah, and Blair is portrayed everyone else is kind of messed up and he somehow re- retains some kind of innocence by going to the east coast he got away from whatever toxic culture would have influenced them into turning it into harder and it becoming harder drug addicts, right? Because Blair calls for calls for the help for Julian, but she's very much a drug addict herself in her own way, right? Just higher functioning, and she doesn't, you know, have as much pressure put on her as Julian. Which the the record label itself fell apart uh, in the in the three months that Clay is gone. And we're to understand that he did Julian did every, everything right. He did, you know, he was he we're to believe he's a fuck up in the beginning, but he said he did everything right, and despite his best effort, it still fell apart. Just some bad luck on his part, which is just right. kind of the story of his life. Which is interesting coming, I mean, we know people in, like, bands, like, so what money did his dad give him? How much? Like, obviously these people have, like, a tennis court in their backyard, so yeah. it got to be a sizable investment. And then, I mean, did he invest it in a band that 
didn't put out the album or did they do they trust Julian's musical taste too much to discover these bands like, right like it's 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 never really clear how the record label went under and uh, but Julian is a drug addict he could have pissed it away you know right right and he and uh, right from the get go we see that uh, James Spader's character Rip who is a, another high school friend of theirs I got the uh, I got the because they're all pretty they're all rich kids in the, in this movie I got the uh, I got the impression though that James Spader wasn't necessarily grew up one of the rich kids, but he was like their supplier, you know. And so became he kind of one. and became one. It became yeah. one in that way. So it seems like he kind of resents these rich kids, you know. Like he always talks about like how much money they could ever go ask your dad or blah blah blah. Right, um, and he's definitely exploiting them. And as the movie goes on, he exploits uh, definitely exploits Julian more and more. But uh, what I thought it, it, it does take place at Christmas time, so it's definitely a Christmas movie. Definitely a holiday movie. Uh, and it's also kind of a little bit like, I think the expression is lifestyle porn, because I could see seeing this movie when it being living anywhere but LA, and seeing the movie when it comes out. It opens with this great scene of Clay getting off the airport, the Bangles doing a cover of Hazy Shade of Winter plays, <laughs> and it juxtaposes with him driving through Hollywood. With the huge palm trees and beautiful LA, and it's Christmas time, but of course in California, Christmas doesn't mean what it means in the Midwest. <laughs> they don't get real Christmas out there, <laughs> right? And uh, that's kind of like you know this this story. It predates the Kardashians in the Hills, but it's very much like that. It's it's rich kids behaving badly, and that's what was so groundbreaking about the novel. Because when Brady Snellis first wrote this story. He was like 20 years old. He was very young. I think it was published when he was 21. He had been working on it for a couple of years. And uh, it, at the time, it was seen as like this no-holds-bar behind-the-curtain lifestyles of the rich, the rich and famous' kids. And uh, that's definitely a component of this story, is that these kids, in the opening scene, they have their whole lives in front of them. They have super rich parents. They just graduated from high school. Everything's just going perfectly. Yeah. Could be. And like Julian... Uh, you know, Clay's the only one that goes away to college. Blair was going to. And then she, she chickens out at the last minute. She says, starts telling Clay, like, I don't love you, I don't want to be with you, but you find out, you know, a little bit later in that conversation that she's just scared to move on. Right. And which is something, I mean, I experienced, like, I... I can relate, absolutely. Went to Columbia after high school. It's probably one of the biggest mistakes I made to stay in the city with the same old fuckheads. And, you know, I could, I could definitely relate to this story. There's something to be said about going away to school and, like, just going and living in a small college town. But, interestingly enough, uh, Brady Snellis would later do an actual sequel to this book and movie called Imperial Bedrooms. But his follow-up novel to this was Rules of Attraction, which takes place at the East Coast school that Clay went to. And we see kind of the same debauchery, but it's also, like, debauchery of kids in college. So it's kids that are still trying to make classes and get a degree in. They're a little bit higher functioning than Julian, who's just... Fully gone right by this point. Yeah. So... And uh, yeah, Ju- like, you see Julian at the first. When they get there, he connects with Blair, and you find out that Blair really called him to come help with Julian. So he sees her at a party, and she keeps asking, "Have you seen Julian yet? Have you seen Julian?" So you run into him. He seems like same old Julian at first, just big fun party guy, having a good time. But you hear he's been disappearing. He's been getting into harder stuff, and he's he's on he's high way more than he ever used to be, right. which was quite a bit. So you see him at a party, and he kind of disappears for a second. Everyone else is buying coke. You see Rip handing out little bags Julian asked him for one and instead of giving him the vial that he gave Andrew McCarthy when he first showed up he yeah. gave him a different bag with a rock in it right so everyone's kind of doing coke in this movie you know and then but, but Julian he's on crack at this point yeah he's already graduated to crack which um, 
I have no experience with. But I've I've ex- <laughs> what I did crack one time for three days. <laughs> I ha- I had a situation where uh, somebody had had I had a corn cob pipe that I had bought at uh, like a Walgreens or something like those old like Popeye pipes. Yeah, and people would smoke weed off of it. Well, corn cob pipes are obviously made of corn corn cob, so they're very absorbent. And somebody had smoked weed with with uh, coke on it and basically transformed this thing into a never-ending crack pipe and it took me a little bit to realize what the fuck was going on I want spaghettios and I can make them now (laughs) so uh, yeah it's definitely definitely upped this game and crack I I mean I don't have a whole lot of experience with it but usually the the distinction that people make is that you know if, if you can if you can do if you have a bag of coke and you can get X amount of coke from that bag if you transform it into crack I think you have like three X, right? Like it goes you, a lot further. It goes a lot further, but the high is shorter, which means you use it more. So it's kind of like it's a double edged. It's story. also a different high, almost entirely. With cocaine, uh, I am to understand that it is uh, mostly a, a head high, whereas crack kind of takes over your whole body. You get more of a euphoric feeling from it. The same way, like smoking weed hits you different than eating edibles. One hundred percent, great right. comparison. Yeah. So uh, Julian's a full blown crackhead. He's up. He's into rip for fifty thousand dollars. Uh, and there's there's animosity at first between Clay and Julian and Blair because when he came home for Thanksgiving they were fucking he felt betrayed so when he comes back he's very guarded about letting them back into his life because he went away to school and you know he's he's on that career path he's going to do that the last time they seen Julian was when he was when he was fucking Blair you know? right so there's a lot of animosity over that yeah scale. so it's like I got to help this guy out that like took advantage of my girlfriend. But I don't think he fully realizes how deep, how bad it is. Yeah, with Julian. Not for a while, actually. That's when the I remember earlier when I had seen this. I rewatched it again last night. I thought right away and, um, that Clay picked up on how bad it was. He doesn't pick up on it until about an hour and twenty minutes into the movie. How bad it really got. And it's an hour and thirty minute movie. Exactly. Right. The last the last 10-15 minutes are just absolutely insane. And um, with, with Blair, I mean, you know, he, he gets to Blair. They just start making out right away. Like they just pick up where they left off. He really has no interest in seeing Julian because he thought the call was for. Blair and, and, and Clay to reconnect when really in reality Blair's calling the, calling Clay to help Julian because he's the most stable friend that they have. Mm-hmm. He's somebody that he's the kind of guy you call when your friend needs help. And Julian is a hard personality. He doesn't think he has a problem. He doesn't want any help. And he's still resentful over Clay because he's still in love with Blair. And Blair clearly favors Clay. Right. Well, and Blair's also kind of a, a constant in Julian's life. He's going through a very hard time, and she's helping him with he it. He had been kicked out of his house. Right, which is, the house is freaking amazing. Amazing, amazing. Tennis court in the, the backyard. Tennis court in the back of the state. Right. And he had been crashing at her studio for a while since he had been homeless, but he's not doing, he hadn't been doing that for a little bit, and he just keeps disappearing. Right. So Clay's not interested in helping Julian when he comes back. He's like, fuck him, that's how he always, that's just Julian. Right. And as it goes on, you start to realize that Rip has been stringing Julian in, roping him in. He owes the $50,000, and Julian will still be able to hit Rip up for another bag or something like that, I, you know, at cost. Rip knows what he's doing. Right. Keep him on the hook, you know, long enough where they start to need you. And, as, and then, you know, there's a lot of different parties, and then Clay's realizing how much he kind of grew out of this scene. Blair very much has her own high-functioning drug problem, which she seems to kind of conveniently ignore. Uh, she's really out of those. She's struggling herself. She has some like neglectful parents. I think that's what, that's the vibe I was getting. Right. 
the scene when she's calling her dad when she just gets home she's about to go out again and when he's getting a blowjob from his leg or something he can't even bother to come out of the room and say hi to his daughter who's about to go away again yeah that was a funny scene too but the mom comes out the stepmom comes out wipes her mouth off and kisses her on the cheek and I'm like Jesus Christ so the book was the book was uh, explicitly from Clay's point of view so you don't see anything unless Clay sees it the movie uh, does bounce back and forth between the three leads and mostly spends more time on uh, Julian, uh, Robert De Niro's character, or I'm sorry, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, and his descent. I mean, if you were to look at Less Than Zero uh, in total, it, it's it, Clay coming back home for Christmas is what sets the narrative in place, but it's really Robert Downey Jr.'s Spirals. Yeah. And uh, which at the time, you know, Coke was huge in the '80s, so this was this was but a crack was just coming on. Yeah, uh, so it was a cautionary tale, and uh, also all of these actors were part of the Brat Pack at the time, which in Hollywood was uh, there was a group of young actors that mostly were like in John Hughes movies. Yeah, and this was this was the dark one. This was the the Tarantino esque, like you know, doing something different, uh, you know, kind of underground youth culture movie movie. And the book was kind of the same way. Like, I've, so I've read the book, and what's very interesting about it, the literary style of it, is that it's, I'd say there's maybe, there's a handful of chapters, but every chapter is, is kind of broken up into little scenes. And it jumps around a lot. It, it's hard to get, like, a coherent narrative out of the book, which is why they had to make so many changes when they try to put it into screenplay form and turn it into a movie. The movie and the book kind of operate in different universes, but they... they touch on the same stuff um but the but the book was very much of the mtv era because you're used to like reading novels that have you know i don't know 15 page chapters and it's very structured the book was all over the place and that was something that was seen as like innovative uh literally like in, in a literary sense and also very much of the mtv generation was burgeoning at the time oh yeah absolutely so it was like these quick little chapters these quick little vignettes we do this for a little bit and then clay's over here and he's doing this clay's over here and doing that kind of seems like every chapter in the movie kind of resets at a party right because there's about five different parties that go to throughout this movie yeah and that's that's another device that he uses in rules of attraction which is the the thing at college is that the the movie's basically or the book's basically broken up into like the back to school party the black wednesday party the, the end of the world party right yeah so uh, that was a little hard to transfer into the movie, which is why the movie doesn't just follow Clay's POV. And Clay doesn't have a lot to do because the audience, the studio, when they were making it, felt that the audience needed a innocent uh, character to identify with. So Clay doesn't do drugs. Clay doesn't sleep around. In the book, Clay's bisexual and he does coke casually, picks it up, puts it down. In the movie, what I got from the movie, when, when Rip first meets him, he goes to hand him... Uh, he goes to hand him a vial of coke just like as a party favor. Right. And um, and Clay's kind of like you know like he gives the implication like that's not me anymore. You like, like so I think it maybe in the movie universe he used to do it but now that he's kind of grown up and grown out of it because Rip hands it to him in a knowing way like I know you like to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, and the book he does. It, it, the, I don't know if that scene exact scene happens in the book. I can't remember, but the book Clay would have done it. And also the first the first reveal which we might as well get to now uh, of Julian graduating into a male prostitute um, <clears throat> Clay sits there and watches while Julian has sex with in a, the book yeah with a businessman from the Indiana movie catches it but well we'll get to how it's handled it's handled in the movie a very weird 80s Hollywood way but like in the book uh, yeah he goes with Clay to one of his like meetings or he meets a guy in a hotel 
and uh, it's an older businessman from uh, Indiana that's traveling through, and I believe he uh, bangs Julian in the ass. They, they don't really get into like the mechanics of what these people are doing. No, not in the movie at all. Yeah. There's a lot of implied stuff. There's a there's, there's two, two two times where you actually kind of two different occasions where you know that Julian is prostituting himself, and one of them he gets brought to a party. They say we're going to send you to the party. You're going to meet some friends. And he comes out and runs out. He, get, he gets out of a room and Bill or Billy, whatever, um, uh, rips yeah, muscle. Yeah. Says, By the way, pretty, what a very pretty scary man in the movie. <laughs> With that eyebrow. That's how you eyebrow. know he's up to no good. That's how he's up to no good. He's a no good Nick. You can tell from the eyebrow. <laughs> and so Julian comes out of the room looking white as a ghost, sick to his stomach. And Billy goes, it's okay. We got two more. Let's go. And Julian just runs, disappears, and goes to a party that I believe uh, Blair or Clay are having. And he just kind of hides out by the pool. Clay sees him and goes and checks up on him. And this is when Clay starts to realize, oh, shit, this guy's in real trouble, not just being, like, his normal self. Right. And the Bill guy that we're talking about, uh, and this is an interesting, like, it's going to sideway an interesting anecdote. You'll probably remember him. The audience will remember him. His name is Michael Bowen. You'll remember him from the I'm Buck and I Like to Fuck. He was a... In, oh in uh, Kill Bill Volume 1, he had the pussy wagon car. He also was the Nazi in, um, wasn't he the Nazi in Breaking Bad in the last season? Uh, let me look. Yeah, he I, he was in uh, Jackie Brown. He's been in a bunch of stuff. You'll, you'll reckon he was in Castle. I think he was I think he was Jack the Nazi in uh, Breaking Bad, Michael Bowen. He was in Django Unchained. Quentin Tarantino's used him a lot, which is interesting because Quentin Tarantino has... You know, he talks about a lot of different projects. He's talked about the Vega Brothers. He's talked about all kinds of shit. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 3. One of the things that he's... He was supposed to do the Star Wars re- or Star Trek yeah. thing. He has he has talked frequently about uh, remaking Less Than Zero. Really? Yes, Quentin Tarantino. And doing it closer to the book, which is way more depraved and fucked up, which would kind of fit with... And it, honestly, after he just did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood... I mean... Where, I mean. Where he, he leaves off in 1969. It would be interesting to see him pick up where Hollywood's at by 1984, 1987, whenever he sets it. And, uh, yeah, so Quentin Tarantino, less than zero connection. But, yeah, Michael Bowen, who plays Bill, who's kind of like a Rip's enforcer. and uh, Rip doesn't like to get his hands dirty too much. He's like, he's like you'd be a big, big boss guy, but he doesn't get his hands dirty. He has other people do that for him. Right, so he kind of subcontracts Bill to pimp Julian and takes him to the different... Uh, is different meetings and once Julian, he's the guy you call they can't pay when uh, when Julian can't finally comes to rip about halfway through the movie and says look I can't pay you back this 50 grand there was some kind of deal for him opening a club that fell through but his uncle his rich uncle was going to help him who I guess him and the, the uncle and, and uh, Julian's father don't have a good relationship they don't seem to talk that much yeah and it looks like his uncle kind of enabled him they had that conversation where he's going to loan him 15 grand for the, uh, for the club and then at the end of it, he looks at Julian. He's like, "Now you want to go do a bump?" And Julian's like, "Yep." And then they go. That, that, that's a scene. And a little bit after that, Julian is found breaking into his dad's house, going through the CD collector, looking for shit to steal. Yeah. So w- then he tells the uncle that blows up the whole fifteen thousand dollar loan, which sends Julian even darker down a path. Well, at that point, he goes to Rip one on one and says, "Look, I can't pay you back the fifty grand. What are we going to do?" And Rip says. I'm going to have you meet some people. Basically, I'm going to turn you out as a man. You're going to work for me until the debt's cleared. And then he actually, Julian agrees to it, too. He does agree to it at first. Yeah. I don't know if he necessarily knows what it entails, but when he goes to, uh, the next time we catch up with Julian, he's leaving a motel room, which I assume is the scenario that's depicted in the book. 
where he's sleeping with a businessman from uh, Indiana. And uh, Bill's there and says, okay, you only got two more stops tonight. Which means that, like, he's just driving around pedaling this dude's ass. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's always interesting the way that, like, gay for pay is portrayed in movies. Because this is something that I noticed that for the first time, like, in The Basketball Diaries. Yeah. Have you seen that movie? Oh, I love that movie. When, when Leonardo DiCaprio's character hits rock bottom and prostitutes himself for money, he's shown letting the gay dudes blow him for cash, which... I mean, I guess maybe that exists. There's a but market for that, I guess, but that's not like whatever happens. You, you would, I mean, you would think if I'm giving somebody money and a blowjob's involved, I'm the one getting the blowjob, not like I'm going to pay you money so I can suck you off. Like, but hey, we're old fashioned, you know? Right? Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's I. <laughs> it's not the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around, but it seems a little counterintuitive. So uh, they never exactly show what's happened to, to Julian, and uh, but then he he really reaches out for help. Clay understands the severity of the situation. Tries to get money from his his uh, father. His father, Julian, makes amends somewhat with his father. But and, in that same scene where he asks Clay for the money, Julian still got a lot of pride. I don't know how at this point, but he has a lot of pride. Yeah, not, but but not enough pride to not go right into Clay's mother's uh, wardrobe and steal all of her jewelry. Yeah, it's you realize certain leaps in logic are kind of being made because the movie's already committed to a certain narrative and the movie's narrative is you know we want to show this depravity we want to show all this stuff that the book showed but whereas the book showed it being widespread amongst all these characters the movie hyper focuses on Robert Downey Jr.'s character Julian he's the he's the bad apple and which Blair is a slightly worse apple but not without redeeming qualities and Clay is the uh, audience's point of uh, connection He's basically the innocent trying to do the best he can. And I think what, what makes it hard to watch with Julian, because I love Robert Downey Jr., always had one of my yeah. favorite actors of all time. What makes it hard with Julian is his character, when he's not on the drugs to be depraved, is a sweetheart, a good friend, a good person. Everyone loves him. He's got a great personality. It's fun to be around. And just his wit. He just makes everyone like happy around him. Clay wants nothing to do with Julian for most of the movie. And even with all his problems, Julian still makes him care again. Right. Because he's got he's a good person. He's just in a bad situation, right. addicted to a bad you know bad thing with uh, foam around his mouth. consistently. Yeah. I have to. Move I don't know it. if that's cum or if that was just sweat or, or froth. Or I something. think a lot of froth probably from yeah. like being sick, especially at the you know at the end when we get to that point, that becomes very clear. Yeah. So there there is a detox scene which only takes one night, which is good to know. If we ever completely go off the rails, it's become crackheads at all. It's exactly. Take us. I mean, and there were no babies crawling on the ceiling like a train fire, <laughs> which would be my big fear. <laughs> but good to know that after one day of crack addiction we can kick this thing yeah so so he he winds up in player's loft they kind of patch him up they they let him puke they rub his back they give him a shower wakes up the next morning and he's good that's when he goes and sees the dad and kind of starts this process of trying to to take his life back makes the mistake of going to visit rip at a party trying to be a man talk to him honestly listen i'm, I'm good with my dad now my dad is going to help me get through this but he's like i can't do anything for you but he goes rip at a party where he's outnumbered and Rip kind of says like, "No, you're gonna you're gonna do this again," and they put the with his dad makes a deal with him. He's like, "Stay sober for one week," right? And he's like, "You can be back in the fold, and we'll fix all these problems." But Rip isn't hearing any of this. He doesn't care about the money. The whole point for Rip was to get. I think Rip sells the drugs on the side to get his real money from pimping people out. I think that's. I think that's where like his heart kind of seemed to be in it. The books go in that direction, yeah. Because we'll talk. We'll talk about the. There's actually a, a, a very uh, a legit sequel to Less Than Zero called Imperial Bedrooms. Um, we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, uh, 
I, you know, I wouldn't have done that. I would have just waited the week. Waited the week. Exactly. <laughs> and then come hide back out, with the money. Hide out in that, uh, that fortress he lives in for a week. These guys, by the way, aren't very well connected. What do they do? Uh, they, they, they trash the studio when they're looking for Julian. He goes on the run. They're trying to hide him. And they write it on the wall, what? Julian gives good head and is dead. That is not poetry where I come from. Okay? <laughs> that was just, they're not like well connected. They're not like the cartel where they're going to get into your house and kill you. This guy's in a fortress. No, you know? it's one rich 18-year-old and his probably 22-year-old muscle. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's the extent are. of their operation. Um, so we see Julian goes to this party to confront Rip, which mistake number one: don't confront until you have the money. Mistake number two: goes to a party filled with nothing but dudes and one woman. One woman randomly in there. I saw. I was like, "There's a lot of guys here." And I saw the one woman. I was like, "Oh." Okay. And she's this kind of older chick. Like I, maybe there's an explanation or a story here. I don't know what it is. Uh, and basically, Rip says, "You're not leaving. You're gonna smoke this crack." And. It makes it seem like all these dudes think, are going to fuck him. I think it was, it was actually funnier than you're going to smoke this crack because he tells him, he's like, you know, you're going to go back to work and you just see Julian completely defeated. He was so serious about getting sober this time. And then he hears he's going to have to plow, you know, go at some guys. So Billy's got the crack pipe to sit there going to smoke it. And Julian's like, I well, fuck it. I might as well do this high. Yeah, he goes, I can't do this. And then Bill pulls out the crack pipe and preps it and says, ah, you'd be surprised what you can do. So, yeah, that's what it was. And that kind of like... In that moment, you think that what's going to happen is he's going to smoke the crack, go in the other room, strip down, and they're going to run a train on him or something. When we find when when Clay catches up with this Julian is when you later, actually see what he's doing. He's in he's in a bedroom off to this. The party's still going on. It has not changed in the slightest. The random chick is still there with a tray of meatballs or some shit. <laughs> and Clay goes in the back bedroom and finds Julian about ready to blow some other guy. But what's interesting is that. The other guy seems just as shocked that, like, I almost got the feeling that, like, he didn't know that this was a male prostitute situation or yeah. something. Like, what is he? Like, I thought this was cool. I thought this was cool or something like that. He yells. Right. And uh, so I don't, that was weird. It's always, and that seems like, you know, either the, the screenwriter didn't want to, like, kill the audience with a depiction of an honest to God crack fueled blowjob gay sex party or gay sex party, yeah. either either he doesn't know what one looks like he can't imagine what one looks like the studio told him how to tame it down it doesn't seem very realistic in the scheme of things for the context of the movie and how it was set up or what you would imagine a, a crack fueled yeah, yeah what you can imagine I actually I, I've been to a lot I have not been to a crack fueled gay sex party I have not been to one well the afternoon's still young. The afternoon's still young. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, it was a little a little dramatic. And then the way they pull, you know, uh, Clay's the movie's beautifully shot, and the way that they kind of have Clay going up to the party in that uh, glass elevator by himself, it's very cinematic. It's very like foreboding, and you see this is the part where he had in his life he's got to pull his buddy out of this party. And by this point, Clay's completely aware of how bad it's gotten, and is right. fully committed to helping him now. Yeah. And when he pulls him out of the party, Julian's kind of, like, disheveledly dressed in this glass elevator going down. Fucked up, ashamed, all that. Like, uh, sweaty again. Sweaty again, as yeah. always. You know someone's job on the set was to miss Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> between takes. <laughs> like a, you know, like a hairdresser best, spray bottle. Best job in the world. Better right. than the guy that didn't do the froth. <laughs> Uh, so they get into a fight on the way out. Um, Clay kind of gets his ass hit by Billy because those are kid ourselves. Billy's a badass. Right. And uh, Rip gets his head smacked against the wall. They get him out of there. They get him out of there safely. And the plan now is they're going to run back to the East Coast and go back with uh, go back with Clay. Mm-hmm. And they're going to straighten him out. That's the plan. So as they're going there, because we're getting towards the end of the movie now, 
They just decide Blair's going with them too. Everyone's going to the East Coast. They're running away from this toxic situation. They stop at a gas station, and Julian comes out looking more fucked up than he has in a while. And like they're like looking for him. They see him, and he starts giggling, and he grabs his chest a little and drops to his legs. He's still smiling, trying to hold. There's something going on with him. He's trying to hide it from everybody. And he gets in and starts acting normal. He's like, I'm fine, guys. Everything's cool. We're, we're all great. And then they cut scene later, and they show them all sitting in the car. And he's dead. He died he's in dead. the car. Blair's sleeping. He's sitting straight up with his eyes closed. And Clay's driving. He lumps over. Clay's kind of like laughing at him, like, get up, Julian. And he's dead. He's got the stuff coming out of his mouth. Clearly dead. Looked very real. I do not remember the first time I had seen that, that looking that graphic. It was really just a creepy scene. You know, yeah, and you know what uh, sells it is Robert Downey Jr.'s death face because his eyes are open just enough, just enough, where it's like, oh my god, that's a dead dude. Like he he plays dead very well. It looked very very real. Yeah, and uh, there's a funeral, and then Claire says that she's going to go back with Clay to the East Coast, which at that point is like, what are you going to do? Enroll in community college, live in the fucking dorm with a roommate? Yeah. Like what? Yeah, I mean, like what kind of modeling is going on? You know, Hollywood ending. Yeah, Hollywood, Hollywood ending exactly. Um, so in the book. Just talk about that for a second. Uh, Julian doesn't die. He doesn't. No, not at all. So he's in the sequel. Yes. Oh, and he's no, a, I'm way more interested. He's now. a pimp at that point. And what's interesting is that Clay becomes a screenwriter and wrote the screenplay to Less Than Zero. So something that you see happen with a lot of books that turn into movies is that like the uh, so a, a great example for this is Jurassic Park. All right, if you've ever read Jurassic Park, the book by Michael Crichton, it's it's very different than the movie. Way different. Jurassic Park. Closer to the Lost World, actually, storyline. What do you mean? The second one, the second Jurassic Park movie, the intro to the book and the intro to the second Jurassic Park movie were very similar with the copies. So, yeah. So, when when Michael Crichton went to write the sequel to Jurassic Park, the movie Jurassic Park had already taken taken off, so he made sure that the book sequel was more in line with the movie so that that way it would be easier to adapt. Yeah. This is something you see authors do. Uh, Brady Snellis did somewhat of the same thing when he wrote the sequel to Less Than Zero. Because you said before, he resented the movie initially. Initially, which I could totally see, because it, it, neutered his, it neutered his script. There was a couple screenplays. The studio bought the rights to the book almost, I think, before it even came out, and then wrestled with how to make it for three years and what level of intensity they wanted uh, without with, you know, keeping Less Than Zero Less Than Zero, which is why it was this huge underground phenomenon, but at the same time, something they could, like, realistically released in the theaters the parent groups weren't going to boycott yeah and something tame enough to where they could get all these brat pack actors to agree to it and not totally tank their careers remember we were talking about we were talking about uh, who's president 87 Reagan still yeah it was the last year so of Reagan, Reagan there's something yeah. about the Reagan 80s still where like that was back when the parental advisory started to become a thing too yeah so something as graphic as the novel as you describe it would be very hard to get on screen sure and so they toned it down for the movie when Brady Snellis wrote the sequel to An Imperial Bedroom, which was only about 10 years ago, uh, he has the Clay character be, uh, when he went to the East Coast, Camden, he became, he was a writer, he was an English major, became a writer, became a screenwriter, stayed in New York, wrote the screenplay to Less Than Zero, the movie, sold it. So when he goes back home to cast his next movie, he's going to get a bunch of actors and actresses from L.A. Um, he runs into Blair, he runs into Julian, he runs into all these people, so he's writing Julian's life story. Yes, and Julian's, who now is a, uh, is basically a rip character. He's a, uh, he's a pimp. But he's, he's a very a, high class pimp, but he pimps out actors to... Is he still a user? I don't remember. 
But I know that he died. Julian does die in the Imperial bedroom uh, in, in the sequel. And at this point, Brady Stanellis really got into like, and he's still at this today. Like he writes horror movies. He wrote like the Smiley Face Killers movie. He wrote that. Yes. Okay, and it's been on my Amazon like to watch list for a very long. It's time. It's not gay enough, and I that, that, that's what I said. It. I, I reviewed it on one of my podcast, other podcasts, and I was like, not a bad movie. Definitely not gay enough because if it, it, I mean, well, we won't do the Smiley Face Killers thing. We'll talk about that after this. But uh, so Bryce knows basically just horror movies now, and so he introduces that there's like a serial killer uh, loose when Clay comes back to L.A. to cast this movie. That's killing the characters from less than zero. Really? Yeah, and then I think it has a very ambiguous ending whether or not it's Clay or Blair. I think it's actually Blair. Is it's it like, killer? Yeah, because she's married to, I want to say Rip, or that something. It's very, like she's a, she's an aging model. For, for the record, Blair never knew what she wanted this entire movie. The whole time, I know she cares about Julian. I know she cares about Clay, but I swear for the first half of the movie, you can't tell who she's playing, and maybe she's just playing herself because she seems very confused. I just she seems so out there like the whole time. But and I don't know if it's coke fueled because she is constantly seen doing cocaine. And I know she loves both of them. Well, this might be me making uh, excuses for the movie, but she is supposed to be a model. And and I'm not saying all models are rapid, but if you want to talk about a job where like at least if you're an actor or actress or, or we're talking about a movie that plays on stereotypes a little bit too. Right. If if you're going to be an actor and we we'll use that as a blanket term to, to reflect both sexes. There's a certain amount of crafts and like there's something to be learned and and you know you can get a bachelor's degree in acting. Um, modeling I don't think is that intense or thought provoking. I think literally you put these clothes on and we take your picture. Yeah. And sometimes you're half naked and sometimes you blow the photographer or whatever. You make concessions. You're basically uh, 100% being preyed upon for your beauty and not your not your craft, not your actual ability. And that is part of the that's. It, it's interesting to bring that up. That's part of the plot of uh, Imperial Bedrooms is that Clay is coming back to cast the next movie that he's doing based on one of the screenplays. And he becomes obsessed with an actress who's like, how old he was in Less Than Zero. He was a younger chick. Is it the actress he's that plays Blair? What? Is it the actress he wants to play Blair? No, because it's set in modern times. But oh. it's it, it's basically him uh, obsessed, sexually obsessed with this actress who he keeps promising he's going to give the part to even though he knows there's no way because she has zero acting ability. So if she was trying to be a model, fine. You don't need acting ability. You just need to be pretty and be able to do what they tell you to do. Hit your poses, yeah. Right. But if you're an, a- an actor is one step harder than that. So the fact that Blair is kind of like goofy and, and doesn't really know what she wants, I think that fits the MO of a character that graduated high school, had the money to go to whatever college you want to go to. And right. now we know that their parents could have just bought her into fucking UCLA I mean, or something. They show Blair's house once or twice at the home movie. She's loaded too. Right. And I mean, she's 18 years old and she's got this beautiful loft. Like, she's not living above Haas' Tavern. No. No, no she's not. <laughs> Good old days. Yeah, speaking of crack. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that I think that and that might be actually, like, literally, like, more realistically a product of shitty screenwriting. But I think she's a fine actress. She did great in that movie. I thought yeah. she was fantastic. I'm teasing the character just because I was. It was. It was. I just it's something I laughed at a couple of times because like she they they also make out a lot. Her and Clay make out a lot at different times. Yeah. Also, there's like a 15 minute sex scene in it too. Yeah. Like, oh, right she's on top. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At first, I was like, is she suffocating him with her vagina? And then I realized because it's a weird angle. You can't tell. Uh, I thought that too. No, you can see his chest. She's on top. She's just one regular. Of, no, that first shot 
though it does look like she's riding his face. And then when they cut to, they, they do a couple more shots in the bedroom, you see that she's actually riding him, and she's just on top. But yeah, that was my first impression, too. I was like, I was like good for them. So Blair is, uh, we might have mentioned it before, but she's portrayed by uh, Jamie Gertz, who's from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, she's She's been on This Is Us, uh, The Neighbors. Um, she played uh, Bill Paxton's, like, new wife or girlfriend in Twister. Yeah. You know how, like, you know, he's with Helen Hunt, or that's like, and she, or whatever. Helen Hunt's like his ex or something in like that. Right, yeah, yeah. That rivalry, she's like the new... He's, he moved on, he's a weatherman or something, or she's a... I don't know what the fuck he is. We're not talking about Twister now. But she's been around. And he won't. <laughs> yeah, she's been around. Um, so, yeah, she's very hot now. And uh, that's less than zero. The soundtrack is worth talking about, too. Because One of the better soundtracks I've heard in anything. Even, like, as I was watching my girlfriend last night, she wasn't too interested in the movie... But uh, every time a song came, I was like, this, this song is fantastic. Like, uh, the, the soundtrack was unbelievable. It brings you in. It fits with the whole theme. Right. Uh, the opening, the op- when, when Clay arrives at L.A., uh, there's this opening montage of him uh, getting off, you know, in the airport and driving through the palm trees and shit while Hazy Shade of Winter plays by the Bangles. Obviously, it's a Christmas movie. It's Christmas time. It's winter, but it's in L.A. Yeah. So, uh, it's a little bit different than what you think. But it is also a cover of Christmas, and then and then they get to that party where Poison's version of Rock and Roll All Night Party Every Day that's what got me plays for like fifteen minutes straight. Like. It, yeah, it's not like a normal movie where they play parts of songs. They pretty much play all of these songs, right? Because there are these parties where it like lends itself to being able to do that. Because you, you're, you're at these massive parties. God, I wish I could go to any one of those. By the way, they all look like a blast. I've been to some good ones, but those all look crazy. So there's there's a decent amount of uh, covers on the soundtrack. Aerosmith doing Rocky, uh, Rock and Pneumonia and, and the Boogie Woogie Flu. We talked about Poison doing Rock and Roll All Night. Bangles doing Heavy Shade, uh, Hazy Shade of Winter. Slayer does an In a Guy of the Vita cover. Which yep, is that was Slayer, party. okay. Yeah. I was trying to figure out who that was. One of the, uh, my favorite interesting things about the soundtrack is that Danzing and Roy Orbison both appear on it. And the story that I heard, because uh, Rick Rubin at the time was producing Danzing, like the Danzing album, like one, two, three, all that stuff, right? So uh, he had Danzing come in, and Danzing wrote a song for Roy Orbison, Life Fade Away. And then Roy Orbison wrote a song for Danzing, which is less than zero, the title song, which it's not available on a lot of streaming services, but find it on YouTube. It is the most fucking, it's one of, and I'm a huge Danzing fan, it's like one of the high watermarks of his career. Erie Vaughn, who was the guitar player for Samhain, and dancing didn't want any part of this fucking song because it's it's definitely like a 60s throwback doo-wop song because Ray Orbison wrote it. Yeah. So Ray, uh, Erie Vine would not play on it so they didn't feel right attributing that song to dancing. So they brought in a couple session musicians and dancing song is attributed uh, it's called Less Than Zero You and Me it's attributed to dancing and the Power and Fury Orchestra <laughs> which is a fucking Apex name. Apex of dancing. That is a fucking name. So, so, never did another song together. It's basically the band dancing without Erie Vaughn, and they were just like, okay, we won't call it dancing. Because Erie Vaughn's like, I don't want my name on this shit. You know, it was just, it's a good song. Please check it out. If there's one thing you do after this podcast. The lessons here, the whole soundtrack is good. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a soundtrack that I own on vinyl. It's one of those ones that, like, you know, when they talk about soundtracks, it was pretty seminal for the time. It, it, it you know, it's not up there with Judgment Night or anything like that, where it like broke new ground. But well, I don't. I know that Brett, Brett Ethan Ellis is known for hating a lot of his uh, movie adaptations. We said before um, he hated Less Than Zero initially. He came around to that one. Yeah. Uh, hate, I think to this day, I think he still hates American Psycho. 
I know he did initially. I don't know if he'd come around on it, but I know he hated American Psycho too. He he has gone on record several times as saying that Rules of Attraction is his favorite adaptation. Now it, that's my favorite book by his, and Rules of Attraction is kind of like Less Than Zero Light. Once again, there's three characters. There's Sean Bateman, who is Patrick Bateman from uh, American Psycho's younger brother. Portrayed in the movie by James Vanderbeek. In the book, do they make it more clear that he is? Because in the movie, you find it out on a random side scene that he's their brothers. Well, yeah. So that side scene that happens in the movie with Christian Bale, that takes place in the book. But Rules of Attraction came out prior to American Psycho, so you didn't know at the time the significance of him talking to Patrick Bateman back in New York, yeah. who was a stockbroker or whatever the fuck. And look, he didn't even say anything. He just calls him. He's in the dorm on the dorm phone. He answers the phone and he's like, "Hello, hello." And he's like. Patrick, and you know that James Henry's character's name is Sean Bateman. That's where it ends. No, they actually shot uh, Christian Bale on the phone. Are you fucking? Really? And they, they couldn't get the rights or something. They didn't. They didn't do it. They didn't end up going through it. But they shot it though. Okay. Yeah, I think when they were shooting American Psycho, they they tried to do that. Um, Rules of Attraction is this underrated movie. Yeah, and it's movie. very. Uh, it treads a lot of the same ground as Less Than Zero, but it does it a little bit differently. There's a, there's a drug dealer they owe a lot of money to. He's a townie. It's done very humorously. Played by Clifton Collins Jr., yeah. who is a psycho in it. Yeah. What is he, guys, like a hatchet or something like that? Yeah. Is that one guy with him? That movie is definitely gay enough. Right. Ian Somerhill, the the uh, George Michael face. Shares my birthday. Oh, okay. Ian Somerhill. He's one of the, I got a couple other more famous people, like Sidney O'Connor, that share mine. But Ian <laughs> Somerhill is the one I tell people. Yeah, Rules of Attraction. I think if you want... Uh, you know, Less Than Zero is good. We're, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, go go watch Rules of Attraction first. Cause you got like, Jessica Biel. Is an amazing, she's amazing in it. As uh, a cokehead. As a cokehead. Shimmy. Uh, <laughs> James Vanderbeek, one of my favorite roles for him. This is this had to be not too long outside of Dawson either. Yeah, I think it might have been his first post-Dawson role. Because he's, he's like a drug dealer, like a small-time drug dealer. His boss is Clifton Collins Jr., and uh, he's, he's also a bit of a drug user himself. He takes a bunch of mushrooms and goes to that party. <laughs> when he's <laughs> fucking the girl and his eyes are all... all <laughs> and then what is it? Jessica Biel's yelled at him and he just punches her in the face and knocks her out. It's directed by Roger Avery, who uh, is the co-screenwriter on Pulp Fiction. Really? Yes. So uh, the screenplay for Pulp Fiction uh, was... Also, I would say it plays a lot like Pulp Fiction, too, because all these different chapters are different. Like, I mean, I know Pulp Fiction like, involves stories that are separate, like, right. but these are all in, in our, intermingle, like... Well, that and that people joke. That's other. That's the other reason why Quentin Tarantino wanted to do less than zero because Roger. You know, they had they had a screenwriting partnership just for Pulp Fiction. They both won the Oscar. They went their separate ways. Roger Avery did Killing Zoe, and then he did this. Then he went to jail for some crazy shit. Like he just got out of jail recently. I think like I don't I don't I don't know. I want to fucking say the wrong thing. Not nothing like incredibly nefarious. Like probably tax evasion or something stupid like that. But uh, so Roger Avery hit it out of the fucking park with uh, Rules of Attraction. And then, um... I had no idea. I was ready to sit. When I saw that, that was a random Blockbuster find that I did. Oh. When I was just there to look for something weird. Because I there was a photo where I was going to Blockbuster, look for the weirdest goddamn movie I could find. And I found that one. I was like, I like James Vanderbeek, you know? Like, I live with Shannon Sussman's in it or something like that. She's great. And, uh, just... Fred, Fred Savage is a heroin playing, uh, heroin taking clarinet player. Yes. <laughs> I can feel my dick! And I, I, can feel my dick. <laughs> I can feel my dick! And, uh, no. So I rented that randomly. Yeah. Watched it. I was so blown away by how interesting it was that I watched it again immediately. So, Brady Snell's for another book called Glamorama, which is all about fashion models and how they're going back to Blair. Who they're very vapid. 
and Kip Perdue's character, the guy that shows up two thirds of the way through Rules of Attraction. Yeah, the guy that's party guy. He does that really fast party scene where he's in like he's in all over Europe, Amsterdam, all over Europe. So when they went over there to film that stuff, because he's clearly in Europe, Roger Avery using the studio's money shot another movie. Really? That they didn't tell him about. Like, oh yeah, we're going over there to get B-roll. This is maybe love Avery way more. This this conversation. And it's called, uh, I think, Literary, or but it's kind of based on Glamorama, which is another Brody, Brody Snell book about the same character who goes to Europe as a fashion model and gets caught in this uh, like web of international spies that like blow up like tourist attractions. And I don't, don't call me on that shit. I really haven't read that one in a while, but. Uh, yeah, there's 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 a Brady Stanella's cinematic, like both literary and cinematic universe, where all his books tie together, and a lot of the people that make the movies go to a little bit of an effort to try to make sure the movies tie together. Oh yeah, and that's why Tarantino's been like, "Well, I, we got to redo Less Than Zero and get this one in the pool." If that happened, I would be number one in line to see it too. Yeah, I think he would, I think he would do it justice. It's Tarantino. I've always liked him. I know you know now it's kind of cool to shit on Tarantino for some reason, even though everyone loved him growing up. But all of a sudden, it's kind of cool to shit on him now. I like everything that Tarantino's released. I mean. Uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, I will say it's my favorite Tarantino movie now. It finally beat out Pulp Fiction. Um, definitely my favorite one. I watched that movie like twice, twice, like every couple months. I watched that movie. Read the book. Yeah. The book I just finished it this week. I heard it's different too. I heard it's a little bit different. Oh well, have you ever read like normal film novelizations? Yeah. You know how they're always like like oddly different than the than the fucking book or the movie or whatever. They gotta fill a lot of pages, you know. He goes out of his way to like so it's like if he what, what Tarantino does is he makes a checklist of tropes that he wants to make sure he fucking nails. And you could tell that like on on his checklist of novelization tropes, he put like different than the movie. And he goes out of his way to make sure that this book is different. I read I think it was either Mike or you were put were online and saying like um, that the ending's like different entirely. Well it starts with um, the whole Manson thing happens fairly early in the book. Even the uh, even the, the ending in the movie part. Yeah, and then um, we we spend more time talking about Cliff's backstory. Which uh, I'm dying to hear. Who he's killed multiple people and talking really? about all the different people. He's I love killed. that scene with his wife when he's just sitting there. Like he might have done. You see him sitting there drinking the beer with his hand on the trigger and it gets tighter and tighter and then just cut away. Like you know he did that. Yeah, too. well it talks it, that and then he killed his, his history in World War II as a war uh, hero. Did not know he was a war hero. Yeah, he was in uh, I think Italy and the both both theaters. He did the uh, Europe and the Pacific. But uh, yeah, so it goes into a lot of story about them, and it also just teasingly enough fast forwards enough to the future to where we actually get a, we actually get it's a paragraph, but it's a paragraph of what Leonardo DiCaprio's character is doing in the eighties. Rick Dalton. Yeah, Rick Dalton's doing in the eighties. So like you see that like time keeps marching on and blah blah blah. blah. It doesn't talk about the the movie. Kind of makes it seem like maybe Dalton's character will have a second life with um, uh, what's his name next door. Oh, uh, Polanski. Polanski. That now he's going to parties with them. Maybe he'll be cast in something. And he was recognized by Sharon Tate, the new thing. Like everyone knew who he was. Like you're McDalton. That's man. not in there, right? And also the idea that if 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 Dalton keeps acting in movies, maybe his partnership with Cliff will continue because. The way that movie ends is that this is their last night together. It doesn't clear that stuff up, which is fine, but it does fast forward a little I'm bit. I'm taking a very quick journey on it. What's about a time in Hollywood? The part when he's taking, he asks me, he smokes, he asks a cigarette. I will say, I have taken, I've taken acid a bunch of times, like way too many times. And that had the best depiction of acid I've ever seen in a movie. Just the one part when he's feeding the dog and he pours the can out into the bowl and it makes a weird flopping sound and looks weird. And he just looks at it and goes, 
whoa, and shake his head. <laughs> very, very real. Little shit like that will throw you on acid. <laughs> and then his laugh when the guys break in, he just starts laughing at him. He's like, all right. He's like, we're, we're, we're the devil. We're here to do devil shit. <laughs> No, you're not. <laughs> that one, I, I never saw that ending come. It was like in Glorious Bastards. I love that ending when they just torch the theater with Hitler and blow him away. Yeah. I love that. I like this ending way better because I'm thinking like, I'm like, are they really going to kill Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton like this instead? <laughs> it went the other no. way entirely. It went the Those other hippies way. fucking busted in the wrong house. It's, are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. The fucking hippies aren't. The <laughs> <laughs> and then he's drinking the picture like, goddamn fucking hippies. <laughs> That, I love it because that scene, you know how they have movie clips on, on YouTube and stuff? That whole scene from when the hippies break in to Dalton torching the chick in the pool is is available on YouTube unedited. Like, not a cam version, like, actually, like, the studio put it up. So, I, I revisited it's, that a couple times during it's, the book. It's genius. It is genius. Yeah. Like, it's a great twist on an ending. And you know what? Movies don't have to be, you know, they don't have to be accurate. It's a movie. Right. It's Tarantino's universe. You can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. No, the book ends with uh, it splits up the filming of uh, that show that he's doing with the girl. And FBI, or not, not FBI. What was it? I forgot what it's called. Lancer. Lancer, yeah. And that happens in the beginning of the movie. And then when we come back for the end of the movie, he's a, an Italian star. Um, the the book ends with kind of like the kind of pep talk that the girl gave him about being a good actor. That's like the, the what the, did it for him. What he ends on, and then Cliff actually gets kind I'm of when the little girl's like that's the film of the best acting I've ever seen. Yeah, there's a lot more stuff with the little girl. She calls him at home that night. The the very last chapter is him and her running their lines before they're seen together the next day. And you see that like he's an actor and he's practicing his craft. And he thinks about like, and a lot of it's him being grumpy because you get in his head about like hippies and him being old and he's an old cowboy. And he was he was he was also a star for so long, and then right. now he's like got to do these foreign movies. Or he reinvents himself, yeah. Which ends up working for him. I think that saves him in the end. Yeah, yeah. So the book is is worth checking out. It's four hundred pages, but it goes okay. pretty quick. I read all the available Game of Thrones books. I'll be okay. I purposely had to throttle myself reading that, where I would only read a chapter or two at a time, because it's one of those things where you start reading it. And it's so it's Quentin Tarantino writing a book. I hope he does more. They're fucking, yeah. they're great. He wrote it too. Wrote the whole thing. Yeah, better than better than the book of Less Than Zero. <laughs> if we got to bring it back around, I gotta, yeah, I still got to read that one again. I got started on that one. I did I did read a lot of Rules of Attraction. Yeah. But it was like when I was in like high school and would like. But just, just when I wasn't paying attention to class, I would just skim these from the library. And you have no frame of comparison at that point. No. I watched Lesson Zero because my dad told me, because my dad knew I liked Robert Downey Jr., and he's like, I got this really good one. Because Lesson Zero, I mentioned this, I might have mentioned this before, uh, they say that that's the movie that got Robert Downey Jr. into his downward spiral. Yeah. Because, like, they were encouraged by the director to go out and party together, and I, Robert Downey Jr. was already, like, a star brat pack in the 80s, which meant the cocaine was already flowing. And we all know how Robert Downey Jr.'s 90s story turned out all the way into Iron Man. He became pretty notorious drug, drug addict. Way more charming than Charlie Sheen's problems, but <laughs> way more charming. Well, that's why... Uh, well, he's also got the acting chops. Freddy Stanellis had also exper- uh, expressed hope that Imperial Bedrooms would be turned into a movie. And I, we're not saying the reason that he wrote the book was to sell the rights to make, make a movie. But, I mean, realistically, the idea of Robert Downey Jr. reprising his role... As Julian... Well, Nelson. he's dead in the context of the movie, so I don't know... It, how you would film I don't know what they're going to do but I don't think they're going to do anything I think it's probably nothing if I, either would have happened by now but they wrote themselves in the corner by killing him all. I didn't realize he survived it yeah it's like when you find out in uh, the Forrest Gump books that uh, Jenny doesn't die I didn't know that yeah she doesn't die I know he goes to the Gulf War I know you know but but yeah Jenny doesn't die in the uh, in the original Forrest Gump but there might be a second one where she does I haven't read that and talked to anyone that has really 
But my friend uh, who read it said, he was like, yeah, she didn't die in that one. Well, that, I, I think that that was the uh, Hollywood realizing that they needed an ending to the story. And yeah. if you make it kind of by proxy Julian, Julian's descent into uh, drug addiction, then killing him at the end, that's how you end the... Oh, so him surviving and getting out of it at the end would not have fit with the dark of the, like, his downward spiral. Oh, he doesn't survive and get out of it. None of that shit about him trying to paint him. Oh, I, I just mean from the movie alone. Yeah, in the book, like, it ends, like, the last chapter is Cliff goes to a party. There's a lot more characters, too. Cliff goes Play? to a party at Rip's, yeah, at Rip's house, and uh, he's got, like, a 12-year-old girl tied up in the bedroom that they're all fucking. Jesus. And, like, she's drugged up and shit. And Clay's like, hey, man, this is too much for me, and leaves and he, goes he, back to he, L.A. Like, that's, that's this line, man. That's the end of the movie. And then he goes, Julia's hosting that party? No, Rip, the uh, oh, Spader Rip, Rip, Rip is. Yeah. Um, I love James Spader. I really, I always have. I've always loved James Spader. You know, this was honestly, uh, and then, so this, this is honestly, like, my first time seeing this movie all the way through. I was aware of it from day one because Robert, people always told me that, like, there's a scene where Robert Downey Jr. blows James Spader. Which doesn't happen. I was like, no. what? I kept waiting for it to happen. I'm like, it doesn't fucking happen. Um, but yeah, I always knew the stigma with this movie where, you know, he turns into a cokehead and fucking sucks dick. And I was like, well, I don't think I need to see that. So I, I, this is my first time actually sitting through it. Oh, I read the book. It was a million times worse. I saw, but <laughs> I, saw the, I saw the original. My dad recommended it to me. Yeah. It was back when I was looking for the weirdest shit I could find. He's like, I got this one. He had a lot of good movie recommendations. But I watched this one and I was like, well, that's fantastic. And I've been obsessed with Freddie Sinellis, the movies ever since. Yeah. I just see that I saw it after American Psycho. That's the one that got me like it got most people. But Lesson Zero was the third of his movies that I've seen. I saw Rules of Attraction after American Psycho, and then I saw Lesson Zero. And Lesson Zero is the one that sucked me the hardest. Yeah. They did film Informers, which is his short story anthology. Uh, one of the uh, and you and I talked about this earlier, but James Spader's character in this movie kind of is like slick back hair, trench coat. Uh, Brady Snellis had a common theme in some of his earlier novels about, and this is once again him flirting with the supernatural and, and horror tropes, that there were vampires that existed in L.A. <laughs> and they definitely make James Spader in the movie look a little bit like what you would think an 80s vampire would kind of look like. Handsome, slick back hair, real clean, but like also... Always like, dark, yeah. Always, always dark. Always seen at nighttime. They never film during the day. Um, and that's... Yeah, so that was kind of... The Informers, they actually filmed... It was probably the most recent one of his books to be turned into a movie. Brad Renfro's in it. I think it was like his last role before he OD'd. Brad Renfro, geez. Mickey Rourke. You see Bully? Yeah. We'll talk about that. Watch that for film school. But, uh... Yeah, so that's the other Buddy Stills movie. But it's... it's now, was, was Smiley Face Killers a book, or was it just a movie he did? It is a conspiracy theory. There's actually a... A slew of deaths all up and down the I-94 corridor from Minneapolis to New York of young men that go missing, and they'll be missing for about a month. And Are we talking about in reality? Or yeah, no, this is real life. Okay. They'll be gone for about a month. Put on my other podcasting hat here for a second. They're gone for about a month, and then they show up uh, dead in a body of water. Or no, they, they show up drowned, not by water, and they've like a dry been, drowning, like a, and they've been dead less time than they've been missing. So someone, will, someone, a guy will go to a bar one night in a college town, disappear, goes out for a cigarette, never comes back. He's gone for two months. Then they find the body in a ditch somewhere. He's been drowned. There's no water around. He's been dead for seventy-two hours. 
and there's smiley face graffiti somewhere in the vicinity. There's a astronomical number of cases that fit this MO, and they're all up and down 94. Okay. Astronomical number of triple digits? Uh, I don't know, but like light, but like uh, one of those. I don't know if it's True TV or some network did like a whole or Lifetime did a whole entire mini series on it. I first heard about it on Coast to Coast AM. We actually made a movie. Uh, it was a fake trailer uh, called The Killer in Yellow, which was based on the Smiley Face Killers. Because oh, I've been fascinated with this case since day one. Actually, my other podcast on Wednesdays we talk weird. There's there's a Smiley Face Killers episode, so, so listen to that. But I mean, this is like a this is like a famous like active serial killer case because it's all young men. That uh, are in shape, they're athletic. Um, Guys that could clearly defend themselves if they had to. Right. And they go missing and they're being held captive somewhere. Who knows what they're being subjected to? And then they, they're found drowned and just dead somewhere. And it's got a lot of homoerotic undertones. So Did they I find can, like water in the lungs drowning? Yes. Okay. And then. So you could clear so and who knows what they're doing to them for a point of time. And and you could clearly see why this story was on Bruddy Stanellis' radar. So he wrote a screenplay for it and they turned it into a movie. The movie, like I said, it's not gay enough. Uh, it's alright. It's worth checking out. I think it's on on demand. But Brad Stanellis lends himself to a certain amount of gay. Well, yeah, he's a gay dude. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, who's check out his podcast. His American Psycho was pretty gay too. Directed by a lesbian. Really? Yeah, uh, I can't remember her name, but Allison Anders, I think she she directed Go Fish. I did not realize that, I did not realize that a woman directed. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I think that was that was probably. I mean, not that she's not a competent director, but the level of misogyny and violence towards women in that movie, you would almost need to have a female screenwriter and director for it to be taken. Because nowadays, if a guy uh, people, did it, it people was, shit all over American Psycho now yeah. because they, you know it's considered like. You know, like the Joker, like an incel handbook kind of thing, you know? Right. Which I love. I love American Psycho. I thought it was a great book. I read the book. I thought it was a great movie. It was, inter- you know, I, you, you just you got to be able to see, like, the new, like, they're not, like, glorifying toxic masculinity. They're not glorifying this violence. They're, they're, you know, they're just showing it. They're, like, he's not, Patrick Bateman's not a good person. He's not expected to be. It's just a cool story. I think it makes a better misfit song. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's all I got. You got anything? I got, that's it for me. All right. Well, happy holidays. Hope you enjoyed the the holiday special, and we'll talk to you soon. See you later.